No my Heidi my welcome to the Price of Purpose podcast where we explore the present and future of philanthropy in Aotearoa. I'm your host Gemma Rose here to bring my passion for youth development and systems change to the conversation. I've lived out that passion for the last decade as the founder of Seed Waikato and am working for Momentum Waikato, the region's community foundation. For the last three years, I've sat on the board of Philanthropy New Zealand and for the last six years have supported the establishment of Philanthropy New Zealand's youth advisory group and network of young people working in philanthropy. Joining me in the waka today is Stevie Jean Gear and Lani Evans, here to unpack all things advocacy. What is it? What is it not? Should we be funding it? And who should be calling the shots? Kia ora everybody and welcome to this episode. I'm so grateful to have Lani Evans and Stevie Jean Gear with me here today. We're sitting down today to talk about philanthropy and advocacy and as a starter I'd love to introduce Stevie Jean to you. Stevie Jean has eight years experience working within the youth sector having spent time in both the community and public sectors advising, advocating, mentoring and creating youth programs. She has extensive knowledge of both youth work and youth development. She's currently the strategic funding lead of youth wellbeing for the Clare Foundation and a mama to two beautiful tamariki. We also have Lani here today. Lani is an experienced entrepreneur, philanthropic leader and community contributor. She was the head of Te Roro, one Aotearoa foundation leading the development of a long-term strategy based on systemic levers and place-based change. She was the inaugural CEO of Social Enterprise Thank You Payroll, co-founded the Thank You Charitable Trust and sits on the committee of the Peter McKenzie Project. Lani is a Winston Churchill Fellow an Edmund Hillary Fellow and an Honorary Member of Philanthropy New Zealand and is a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit. She is also a mama to two beautiful tamariki. So kia ora and welcome to this episode. Thank you so much for being here. I'd love to hand over to you, Lani, to introduce yourself. And please do this in whatever way feels good for you. We'd love to hear your name, your connections into philanthropy and your age, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Oh, kia ora koutou. Um, ko Lani Evans, I'm Lani. You've already given a very robust introduction to my mahi, uh, but I'm based in Porirua, actually in a place called Pukirua Bay, and I'm really passionate about philanthropy, really passionate about social change and about how we make sure that we fill the gaps in our social safety nets to make sure that nobody falls through. So thank you mm. so much uh, for having me today. I'm really excited about the conversation with you both. Uh, and I am 42. Thank you, Lani. Stevie Jean, over to you. Kia ora koutou, kia ora koutou katoa, uh, he uri nei nō te arua, me nai te rangi iwi a hau, koe anō e, e noho anau nō porirua, <laughs> um, ko Stevie Jean Gia, tōku ingoa, and I am 31, not too far off from turning 32, and my journey into philanthropy in the funding sector is quite weird actually, I first I first touched base in the funding sector in 2000 and 17, when I took up a random job as the marketing and communications advisor uh, for what was then Generosity New Zealand. Um, I did a little bit of a stint. It was random. 
it's placed me well for now being the strategic lead for the youth wellbeing here at Clear Foundation. Epic. Kia ora, Stevie G. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you both here. And as I mentioned before, today's episode is all about philanthropy and advocacy. So I'm really keen to dive right in. We want this episode to be filled with juicy nuggets for our listeners. So um, let's go there. So to start with, I would love for us to get really clear on which kind of advocacy we're here to chat about. So this term can be pretty jargony and often in philanthropy, we mean systems advocacy, advocating to government or power on behalf of a collective or for a cause rather than the more common definition that those in social service space use to mean individual advocacy. And so with this in mind, I'd love to start with a question. What does advocacy mean to you? So when I was thinking about and preparing for for this conversation today, I I spoke to a few different friends about what advocacy is because I was trying to think of a definition. And we know that traditionally, um, particularly in the law, advocacy means to make a case on behalf of someone else. But that's certainly not what I think about when I think about advocacy. Um, What I think about is advocacy is the work of persuading others particularly decision makers and those in power, to believe in and make changes in support of a cause or a set of values or an idea. And I think fundamentally for me, it's an act of good citizenship that requires empathy and strategy and usually a really long time to bring to fruition. I'm a trained social worker. So advocacy has been something that has almost been ingrained in me. But when I think about it before that, before I Um, come across it in the academic sense Um, and Lani did a beautiful job of just explaining that Um, as a Māori wahine my tupuna have been advocating for for many many generations so when I think about advocating it's being able to utilize a voice to ensure that there are the right seats and enough seats at the table and advocacy for me is not being fearful of using your voice yeah beautiful I love that The ability to use your voice is so key. And we would love to kind of explore in a little bit more depth now just some examples of what this has looked like for you both. So could you share a time where you've been involved at the intersection of advocacy and philanthropy? What has that looked like? What has that sounded like for you? I feel like I'm in the thick of it right now. There isn't an example that I can draw on right now um, because I'm so in the thick of it. It's hard to reflect on what I'm still in the middle of. But at the moment, the intersect looks like painting a picture and painting it as many times as I need to until the receiver sees that picture in whole. That's very metaphoric. But what I mean by that is quite often when you're putting up proposals to to your trustees, to your board members, they don't know the issues on the ground. And they don't have to. There's no bad on that. I'm not throwing shade at our boards or trustees for that. But what I'm doing at the moment is I'm taking what's happening on the ground and really trying to illustrate that to our board, to our trustees. That doesn't just talk about what's happening now. It's talking about what's happened in the past, what's happening now and where we need to go forward. And that's pretty much the crux of my work right now as I try to bring forward some very exciting advocacy campaigns. People are curious. They're going to ask questions, especially when they don't know an issue as well as I might know the issue, purely because I've just been on the ground. I'm getting quite defensive when people ask me questions. And they're just critical questions. And I, I need time to reflect on that. But like when I get asked questions like, oh, but why do they need that? And for me, I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Did you just ask me that? But it's a real question that I need to really be patient with 
and mm. knowing that this person doesn't understand. So let's just keep painting until they understand. One thing that's working well and working in my favours is I use the voice of those that I'm speaking for in, in every single way. So I am copying and pasting their words. I'm not trying to bring my own words in unless we've already pre-spoken about that and, hey, Stevie, can you make some changes where needed? I am literally using their words because they are the ones who are affected the most. There's a couple of examples that I thought might be useful to share from my time with Te Roro, the One Te Roro Foundation. Voice Whakarongo Mai is an organisation that exists to amplify the voices of the almost 6,000 children and young people in the care system in Aotearoa and to ensure that they're heard. And the idea is that by giving them the ability to advocate for themselves they will be able to affect positive change in both their individual care and also in the wider care system. And so VOICE was co-designed by children and young people with care experience for children and young people with care experience. And its job is to a degree to sort of hold a mirror up to, up to government and to shine a light on the ways in which Oranga Tamariki is working and not working, not serving serving the children and young people it's designed to care for. So the organisation itself is an advocacy organisation and it's also an organisation supporting advocacy. But why I thought this might be a good example is because the funders in this scenario also have taken on a really quite significant advocacy role using their collective power, particularly when engaging with government. And I think that's really important. So the funders involved in the early days of Voice were Todd, Tyndall, Foundation North and Tedodo. While the majority of the funding for Voice comes from government, the four funders provide a relatively small amount of putia, but a relatively large amount of power in that dynamic and in that conversation. And so the funders, the philanthropic institutions, have used their power in the relationship to ensure government is equally committed to hearing from and involving those care experienced young people to move beyond that sort of traditional government process of designing a service and putting it out to tender and to make sure the organisation is understood to be about advocacy and connecting and including those children and young people. For me, it's a great example of philanthropy supporting advocacy, but also using our power to be advocates mm -hmm. uh, to try and help people gain outcomes that they're after that redistribution of powers are available inside of that kind of model. That's so cool to hear. I'd love to explore a little bit more. Should philanthropy be funding advocacy? What are your views on this? Absolutely, they should be funding advocacy. But I'd like to make the point, though, that advocacy will carry on with or without the support of philanthropy. It is not dependent on philanthropy, but should philanthropy help amplify those advocacy messages? Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, advocacy will happen with or without us. And philanthropy is fundamentally, we are a support function. And so that's true of all of the things that happen in community. We are a support function. We are in the background supporting the aspirations of communities. That's our job. But I think if we want to see systemic change, we need to fund advocacy. We need to fund the people who are persuading decision makers and power holders to make changes in the collective interests. And can I just add to that we should be funding not just the advocacy campaign, but the well-being of the advocates as well, because that is so important to remember. I'd love to hear why that is important. And have you seen that funded anywhere that looks and sounds and actually works really well? 
Here at Clear Foundation, this has become a topic at the forefront of our conversations when we when we talk about the leaders in the co-popper that we fund is, is how are they as individuals? How are they getting on? And are they allowing for that time, space and funds to take care of themselves and their team? But it's funny, I just recently had a conversation with somebody, a, a very prominent leader within the South Auckland area. And I, I tried to ask this person, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And, and how, what does that look like in terms of when you ask for funds? But it was so fu- funny. She didn't quite directly answer my question. So I kept reshaping the question to get the answer I was looking for. And it was almost like she couldn't comprehend what I was trying to ask her around. Do you need extra support to support your well-being? And it ended up coming out straightforward like that because I realized she just wasn't quite grasping what I was trying to ask her which was no bad on her she's a very intelligent woman it was just the fact that I don't think she's ever been asked that question before which I was just blown away by. The community sector the for-purpose sector is so full of people who are so incredibly passionate about their work it's really easy for people for all of us to get so focused on delivering outcomes for communities that we forget to look after ourselves and we forget that old you know that saying you can't pour from an empty cup Um, so I think as funders, part of our role is to help people step back from that for a moment and look after themselves. We don't always do it super well, but I think that's coming in more and more to how funders are thinking about sustainability and to how we're thinking about how we support communities as well. Some of those misconceptions or challenges that can come up when it comes to funders backing advocacy, what are some of the things that you've discovered, learned, experienced in your time in philanthropy? There's no one method for funding advocacy. In the beginning, a campaign can look amazing, but I think throughout the journey of that campaign, you've got to expect the unexpected, whether that's media on top of on top of the campaign giving it crap, um, whether that's a change in personnel or conflict amongst personnel, because usually campaign uh, advocacy campaigns, you're in it for the long haul. Um, so these things that journey, so much can happen. And I have witnessed fallouts. I've witnessed pivoting in the campaign. We thought we were going to advocate about this, but actually we now know that this needs more of a voice um, as well as it just not working. And I think that's what can be quite um, scary for funders is they want that guaranteed outcome. They want to know that their money is going to create impact, but you you can't guarantee that with advocacy. But mm. I also think that's what makes it so exciting is you know you're going to make this huge impact or you might not make any at all, but hey, at least there's been some awareness. That's, that's one thing you can guarantee out of an advocacy cam- campaign is there is some awareness. But I know that funders, they just don't like it. I think that that whole um, hesitance to not know the intended outcome can be scary. Yeah, I'm curious about that certainty in process. Like, have you seen any funders in the space look at funding process points rather than outcomes in advocacy? And is that a workaround? Does that seem to help? I, I see that as bad practice if you're just funding a process point. You're either in it for the long haul or don't get in it at all. And I think here at Clear, we're quite sure with if we're going to put ourselves forward to support a, a campaign, um, especially youth-led campaigns, we know we've got to hang around for the long haul. I just think it would be too irresponsible to sort of come in, give some funding and then go, oh, good luck, guys. See you later. Mm. Um, as we've spoken about that power, that redistribution of power, we need to stay there to ensure that that we are 
taking care of that power aspect um, when funding advocacy. I think we could also get better at celebrating incremental change. Like oh, yeah. Because the goal might yeah. be 100% and we might get to 25% during the campaign. And actually, that's amazing because it's shifted yeah. the dial. It pulled everyone closer to that outcome. I think one of the challenges is that we often mistake advocacy for politics. And I think some of us still believe fundamentally that charities aren't allowed to or shouldn't engage in advocacy, but they absolutely can and they absolutely should, as long as the advocacy that their organisations are doing aligns with the co-papa of the organisation. That's fantastic and actually really vital. It's a vital way of raising awareness or, or, or changing issues that affect the people that we serve and really vital for how we advance different missions. I was trying to find some data <laughs> on advocacy. And I couldn't find any New Zealand data, which won't be a surprise, but I did find some US data. And there was a recent poll that demonstrated that 87% um, of people supported nonprofits in the US educating policymakers about the needs of their communities, but only 25% of nonprofits were actually engaging in advocacy in 2022, which was down from 74% in 2000. Wow. And so I think that there's something to notice in there about um, how we're framing advocacy about our fear year of getting called out about the possibility of reputational damage that might be preventing funders and therefore to some degree the for-purpose sector from really achieving big goals um, mm -hmm. because of that. So yeah, I found that really interesting. I think that's something worth ruminating on. <laughs> Quite an old school thought too, eh, that charities shouldn't advocate. They should just get on with their charitable purpose of serving their people. And, and that I think that ingrained thinking stems back quite some years now and you see the establishment of advocacy organizations when actually um, all organizations should be able to advocate no matter what that is as mm. long as it aligns. What are some of those hot advocacy topics at the moment that you see are critical for funders to consider? Right now clear we're, we're hot on youth-led advocacy um, amplifying the voice of young people and what the issues uh, for them are in today. And then also dental, the accessibility for dental care for, for everybody uh, is something else that's important to clear and as well as amplifying gender rights. So really making sure that women are put on the spectrum where they're meant to be around pay equity, around um, equitable opportunity, uh, parental leave, the list goes on. Uh, these right now are, are really hot topics for the Clear Foundation. Um, and in particular to the youth sector, again, I think it's switching up that narrative as a hot topic for advocacy too. I can't speak on behalf of an organisation at the moment, but I mean, for me personally, income levels for beneficiaries, uh, material deprivation, uh, energy poverty, climate justice, prison reform, like there are so many areas depending on what your focus is. Um, I don't think that there's anything that sort of sits above. I think these mm. are just... just it's systems, right? All of these things overlap. All of these things are interconnected. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we had so many awesome discussions about this at the retreat that the youth advisory group hosted with young people working in philanthropy across Aotearoa. And I think what was really interesting to notice uh, what came up quite often was just this kind of sense of urgency, anxiety, and overwhelm in the face of these really big challenges in our time right now. And um how we might work together across generations to be able to make some really meaningful momentum and change in these different areas. Again, as a Māori wahine, working across generations is inherent. I don't know how to work any other way. 
um, and that's from that's from taking the wisdom of our elders to the the experience of of those pakeke who might just sit a little bit older to me, but then also listening to the rangatahi who come in with their new ideas and their very fresh perspective on life. So being able to bring my pepe along to these kaupapa, whatever that may be, that to me is working across generations. I'm not going to lie, it's challenging again. I'm right in the thick of it of how do we ensure that Youth Voice comes through Clear Foundation and how we make our funding decisions. It really means switching it up. On, on how we approach our processes and, and enforce our processes. I just said to our beautiful CEO, Alice Montague, the other day, I said, Alice, I need to work faster. These young people are working way too fast for me um, because they're getting on with the mahi. They're not waiting for me. I'm, need a, I'm needing to make sure our processes are catching up to them. Um, so we're having these conversations around how do we work quicker? Uh, and, and that, to me... By being able to work like that starts to address some of the challenges that I know young people are facing um, when it comes to being in this space and, and being supported by philanthropy funding. Yeah, I think I think um, speeding up processes is really important, but there's also that kind of um, challenge of how do we share power with young people so that they can make the decisions and so they're not waiting around for us? Like, how do we actually hand over that decision-making power? You know, young people are on the forefront of lots of the challenges that we we face. They have more knowledge than us. They have more, more passion. They're seeing into the future in ways that we can't. Uh, so let's hand over the power so that they can do that decision-making so they can create and use processes that work for them rather than having to fit into the moulds that have been created by those of us who've gone before. Yes, that was so good. Thank you. Yeah, that's so awesome. This next one's a little bit of a spicy one. Okay, so we love spice. Philanthropy comes from a place of excess wealth and power. Are there some inherent contradictions in philanthropy and philanthropists trying to fund things like poverty and equity? So... I don't think that philanthropy necessarily comes from wealth and power. I think particular types of philanthropy do, for sure. But there are other types of philanthropy. There is mutual aid. There is the regular donations of $10 a month that absolutely do not come from wealth and power, but they are still philanthropy. And I think we really need to honour that and, and not lump all giving and all philanthropy into the same thing. Mm-hmm. So New Zealanders are incredibly philanthropic. Um Around 84% of New Zealanders give to charity each year. You know, last year, I think there was $38 million that went through um, the platform of Give a Little Alone. Um, And I think all of it matters and all of it is philanthropy. So I think it does philanthropy a disservice when we only equate it with wealth and power. And it also means less people will see themselves as philanthropists when actually the majority of us are. That being said, I do understand the question. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's important, should people and institutions who have power and wealth that has been accumulated through intergenerational privilege or through the exploitation of people or planet, should those people invest in changing the systems and structures that gave them that wealth and power? And my answer is absolutely yes. Because we need to include everyone if we're going to change these systems um, that we currently have. And we need everyone to start where they are as well. So if you imagine yourself as the CEO of a company and you've just started to engage in philanthropy, you've got lots of wealth, you've got access to lots of resources. And through philanthropy, you might meet some folks who are doing on the ground social justice work. Through them, you might learn about uh, the health conditions experienced by children living in substandard housing. You learn about cold and drafty homes. You learn about energy poverty. And then you start to think about how that relates to your life and the staff in your company and 
what if what if some of them were experiencing this and what if changing from a minimum wage to a living wage would make a difference maybe you engage in philanthropy to change the world around you but actually maybe the transformation you have is to yourself so that's a long long-winded answer but we start where we are philanthropy it contributes to community but it also helps those who are giving to gain a broader understanding of issues and it helps them connect to the world around them in different ways so I love the reframe thank you Lani that's really important that we touched on that nuance so thank you yeah, and we really are all philanthropists. We've all given away five, ten bucks. We're just as supportive as some of these big wealthy um, foundations as well. You know what I hate the most? When I sit in at maybe a strategy meeting or it may be just sitting with a certain organisation that says, we want to support rangatahi, we want to support whānau, but they have to be this, that and the other thing. And a clear example of that is um, when we talk about youth development, and then we go and put an age on it, which automatically sets up a barrier for how youth, how we can support youth to develop. And I mean, for me, something that I absolutely try my best here at Clear Foundation not to do is put an age barrier on age barrier on it because it just it sets up barriers straight away. It narrows the audience and the focus that you're looking to support. And to me, that's quite contradicting. When we talk about systems, we talk about the whole picture, but then we create our own barriers through criteria and parameters and um, and expectations, I guess. And so when I start to hear things around, like you say, poverty versus equity, well, there's no equity as long as there is poverty. <laughs> so when you've got these two things side by side, they just do seem very, very contradicting. And I have... I have been in many conversations where these concepts such as poverty and equity have been used in the same sentence and I just sit there thinking, that won't work. Mm. <laughs> and then I go about my life, of course, but I think too, I, I heard somebody else talk about youth thriving, youth development and youth being able to really succeed in whatever pathway they choose to take. But in that same sentence, they then spoke about youth employability. And I was like, hang on, you just spoke about them thriving, but now you're speaking about how ready they are to be employed. To me, that was very contradicting and it does irk me a little bit. Absolutely. Makes sense. I'd love to hear um, what sits as a bit of an ick for you both at the moment inside of philanthropy and advocacy, if anything, at the moment. I think what I just mentioned around those contradicting concepts and trying to deal with two very different areas of youth development it really annoys me when we talk about youth employability too I'm like who is it the youth need to be more uh, more employable or the employer needs to be more youth ready to mm -hmm. employ mm -hmm. young people so that's that's sort of an ick for me at the moment the other ick is and here in philanthropy Maria always spoken about but never spoken to. I know that to be fair, I know PNZ, we we have different Ropu that are set up to be that informed group and to and to pull on that matauranga, that knowledge. Um, but at the same time, I just don't think enough's being done in philanthropy to address the tatiriti, but also just to address Māori excellence as well, or to have the appetite to want to support Māori excellence. Um, it seems to me that there are more questions when you talk, talk about kaupapa Māori than, you, than if you were talking about a non-Māori organisation. There's just this real distrust, I feel. And I, and I will say too, it is being worked on. Um, you know, there are positive steps being made. 
um, as well. So it's not all bad, but it's definitely a bit of an ick for me as a as a young Māori wahine sitting in this space um, and seeing not as much action as I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's probably a few for me, but... Go on, Lani. <laughs> <laughs> List them all. Download all the icks. <laughs> We're ready for it. <laughs> Oh, I think there's a, there's a few on top um, at the moment. I think the ones that I've been thinking about lately is is that storytelling, is that how do we see ourselves as um, as the support function rather than the heroes in stories? Um, you know, I think that's really important because that, that places us in a different part of the system. The conditioning that our community members are so used to, like when I go to talk to community and they 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 already have their speech ready, they're ready to woo you, they're ready to pull out their best work. They come with this uniform of we know how to speak to funders because we've been speaking to them the same way for the last 20 years. It's what works. But at the same time, me being such a fresh person in this space, I can read straight through it. And I'm like, just relax. Right. <laughs> it's all good. I'm just here mm. to get to know you. Um, I'm, I'm. We might get a yes, we might get a no, but hey, that doesn't mean your mahi's going to stop. But you don't need to come so nervous you really sense the nervousness of our community when they speak to funders and that just gives me the ick a little bit just because I'm like I'm just Stevie I'm just here to support don't don't feel like I'm I'm the plug to your to your amazing mahi that I've only just come into it is that power though isn't it like we try to as much as we try to kind of like pull it apart and and create a more equal setting we still do have in most settings power we have the power to decide where money flows and therefore we have the power to decide what the future of communities and what the future of organizations and individuals look like and that's a really hard thing to pick apart it's really hard to come to somebody uh, and and treat them like an equal treat them like a friend when that power imbalance exists and when it's often a power imbalance that doesn't come with accountability funders don't have accountability and when there's no transparency about process or how that or how that operates so yeah that that can be really hard to engage with, but it's also so understandable, yeah, right? Like absolutely. it's so understandable. And personally, I want to be friends with all of these people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can sometimes do that. And sometimes actually that, that's a really hard position to act. It's a hard thing for the, to ask them to lean into. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that thing about processes, I remember sending an email telling this particular partner exactly what I was going to do. This is what I'm going to send it here and we're going to talk about this and then I'm going to do that. And their response was, thank you so much for telling me the process. And I was like, what? You're not going to thank me? But I little to, little did I know that person's just not used to, to that. They're used to just being left hanging for three or four months until mm. they get that final right. email. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? That's the reason I got into philanthropy is because I was on that side. I was going putting in those funding applications and then getting like a, a you know, essentially a, a one-word answer six months later of yes or no. And it's like, but but Why? But how? But I don't understand what just happened in that. Like, why did it take six months? And then mm. why don't I understand the conversations or why the yes or why the no? So that, that transparency, that's that's a long-fought battle, and it's awesome that you're doing that. And we also have to acknowledge that, you know, philanthropy often talks about systems change out here, but we don't often talk about the systems change yes. we need to do ourselves yeah. because even if Claire is doing a great job of engaging with and being transparent and being accountable, the community organisation that you're engaging with still has to engage with other parts of the funding system that are not doing that. 
So I think there's a challenge for us as philanthropy to think about how we understand our own philanthropic system, the ecosystem that we're part of, and we work collectively to change that and make that a more approachable, uh, more useful, more change-oriented ecosystem. And sitting with other funders, I feel so awkward sometimes because I'm just, I'm like, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I make the other funders criteria. I I really bring to the forefront that criteria because I'm the only one sitting there going, yeah, that's cool. Let's talk about that where there's other funders who are like, I can't. It's not within our jurisdiction, which I, I completely understand that. But at the same time, I sit there feeling a little bit like, oh, sorry, sorry, I've uh bring this to the forefront that your jurisdiction obviously isn't working for this community member because you've just cut that off that process off already i i find it quite i mean we know that clear well it's coming out to be that clear is taking a really innovative approach to how to how we fund and that can be really felt when we're sitting with our peers sometimes but at the same time it's good let's mm. let's keep shaking let's keep moving and let's keep um reshaping yeah, beautiful. And I think something that's really clear as you're both are talking is just your levels of self-leadership and awareness. I just want to reflect that back and say thank you to you both for the way that you lead inside the organizations you're a part of, the communities you're a part of, and how that is supporting the redistribution of that power, which is really key. I've got one more question here to bring us to a close. We're just about at the end. We know that young people are awesome. We know that young people are epic. We know that they've got the passion, the ideas, the inspiration the relationships to make things happen. Where do you see them playing a role in the future of advocacy or philanthropy or the meeting of the two? Oh, look, young people have a role everywhere, especially when it comes to advocacy. Young people are affected by the challenges we face and by the issues that we advocate on, whether it's disability rights or gender pay gaps or climate change. All of it affects young people now and in the future, and their voices should be included everywhere. And I think the real challenge is to get those in power to start to listen to the voices of rangatahi and to to really take on board the things that rangatahi are saying. So everywhere. Absolutely, rangatahi are are leaders everywhere in every aspect. I especially think they are leading in advocacy. Who's behind most advocacy campaigns, sitting behind the computer, creating that content, creating that marketing? It's a young person. Who's on the TikTok reels shouting from the rooftops? It's a young person. Who's jumping in front of those boats, ensuring that marine um, climate action has been adhered to? It's a young person. I truly think, I mean, who led Ahumatao? A young person, like the list goes on. I truly think the rangatahi of today are the leaders of advocacy for tomorrow, um, and not just in a way of creating massive advocacy campaigns, but in terms of keeping up with the technology enhancements that will change the way, inevitably change the way that we advocate. You know, of course, we'll keep marching on the streets, but that video content is just going to get more epic. Um, and that's going to be run by a young person. And I think, too, that the ability to mobilise, young people have a knack for that a lot more than, say, other generations would. Um, but at the same time, I don't. I want to acknowledge that older generations are awesome at it, too. I'm speaking to Dame Fina Cooper, who managed to get half the country down the country line. Um, but I also think that our demographics are changing. Our population is getting younger and younger and younger. 
So if we are not preparing our young people to be that intersection between advocacy and philanthropy or just to be doing advocacy, we would be doing our whole society a disservice. We will lose a whole set of, we will lose skill sets if we aren't intentionally putting in time to um, upskill these young people to take on these roles that Lani and I currently hold, but it'll be a young person who comes in after us. And we need to make sure that they're prepared. It's up to us to make sure that they're prepared for that. And uh, just a ex quick example on that, um, I don't, Clear isn't just aiming just to fund young people. We, we are looking to fund, support and mentor them through their advocacy journeys as well, because we know the importance of that, that knowledge sharing. Um, and it's really important. So mm. what do I think where do I think young people are placed in this advocacy and philanthropy? Right at the forefront. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much to you both. As we come to the end of the episode today, I would love to know if there was a question you think I should have asked and or if you have any final thoughts or reflections that you'd like to share on philanthropy and advocacy. And I, I, I feel really, really privileged to be able to speak so freely in this conversation because I do, I am sitting with a funder who funds advocacy. It's one of our main areas um, and it's definitely something we are brave enough to take on. And that's the other thing too about funding advocacy is you've got to be brave to do it. Whether you're the funder, you're the advocate or you're the banner designer, it all takes a sense of bravery. Yeah, that was a really fun conversation. Thank you both so much. And I think one of the things that I would leave the conversation with is a quote from Frederick Douglass, who escaped slavery and helped to lead the abolitionist movement in the USA. And that's, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And I think that's, for me, is really at the heart of a lot of advocacy. Power to mm. the people. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this conversation, for your generosity, for being brave and courageous and perhaps saying some things that feel a little edgy um, and for speaking truth and being authentic along the way. It really means so much and we're so grateful for your time. So thank you so much, everyone, who has tuned in for this episode. Until next time, ka kite.